So we're really honored to have Ed here. Ed is the Dean of the School of Divinity at Liberty University. He's been preaching Bible prophecy for 50 years. So, yeah, give Ed a welcome. Thank you very much. Let's sit down for a couple right. minutes. So, Ed, I shared, uh, you're an author, you have a TV program. Let me, let me tell you, th we had dinner last night. Ed teaches at Liberty all week. Had open-heart surgery 10 years ago, almost died. He'll share a little bit about that. Uh, then on the weekend, does stuff like this. Has more passion than, than most 20-year-olds. And the question I want to ask is, Bible prophecy has been your joy and your life. But there's some people who say, yeah, I heard that, and um, it never happened. Somebody told me about the Antichrist of European community, and it never happened. And Christians have talked about the end of the world. Some of them have deconversion stories because of that. Mm -hmm. Some of them are like, well, you know, the Bible said it never happened. What has kept you hot and passionate all these years? I think Jesus' basic promise to the disciples that I will come again. Uh, and take you to the Father's house. People can differ on the timing of when that happens, but it has to happen. There has to be a time, we'll look at it here in a moment in the message, when the dead in Christ rise and the living are caught up. Uh, the difference is the details, and uh, the facts are real clear. Bible prophecy is not written to scare us, it's written to prepare us. Not written to frighten us, it's written to invite us, come to Christ while there's hope, while there's time, because one day He will come. In the meantime, you might check out. Now, I realize the older you are here today, the sooner you want Jesus to come back because you're running out of time. I get that. My students at Liberty, their attitude is, he's not going to come too soon, is he? Why? Well, because I got my whole life and I'm not married yet. Six months after they're married, they want to know, how soon is he coming? So They've gone through the tribulation. Yeah, yeah the, a God who loves you enough to send his son to the cross to die for your sins, loves you enough, he'll come back when the time is right. So Ed, uh, you know it and I know it, and we gotta be careful in this area. Uh, I literally got saved because someone showed me Bible prophecy. And uh, when I became a Christian, they showed me the barcode, which I think was just on Wrigley gum and maybe Frosted Flakes, nobody checked you out that way. Now we know with technology, we can have a one world system. There is no doubt the two witnesses in Jerusalem can be watched on smartphones. Israel's in the land. The last day started when Jesus rose from the dead. I know Jesus can tarry for 500 more years, but is it normal for every generation to think we are the ones that are this close? I, I think it is. I think he leaves you with the anticipation he could come back at any moment, so you'll be ready for him to come, but we also have to plan your life to live for him uh, as if you have a lifetime to serve God and to stay balanced. Stay with the facts of the Bible and you're fine. Once you get into wild speculation, in 50 years I've heard every crazy thing about who the Antichrist might be. It's usually somebody you didn't vote for uh, and don't like. Uh, <laughs> That, uh, yeah, They're and American. it's always got to be an American president. It's never Canada or Brazil, uh, and uh, they never get blamed for this, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, you're running beyond what the Bible says then, and it's just guesswork at that point. So you stay with the facts, and you're on solid ground. Now, if you get into speculation, at least admit, well, this might be a good guess, but it may only be a good guess. 
Uh, and if we stay with that, I think we stay in the right parameter with the right balance. So I caught the tail end of how yeah. Lindsay and Calvary Chapel mm -hmm. was really big on the end times, and I kind of cut my teeth on Bible prophecy. And then I've also lived through speculation. I, was, I, had a, I had a Bible study. I'm a young Christian, and I preached on this a couple weeks ago, and somebody found this for me. But you remember this, yeah. 88 reasons why Jesus has to come in 88. And then he didn't come, and the guy had the audacity to write another book, 89 Reasons yeah. Why He Was Coming in 89. Yeah. Uh, blood moons and, you know, the, the Mideast beast, and Christians keep buying these books. How do we stay away from sensationalism? You know, I feel like we're giving God a black eye. What, yeah, we, what, it, what do we do? People throw the baby out with the bathwater then and say, well, that was all overstated. So first of all, don't overstate it. Don't fall for speculations. Uh, and, and I had a friend, that same book, uh, he had just been saved. He got in the ministry early on, said, man, have you seen this book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture's Got to Be in 1988? And I, his name was Randy. And I said, Randy, uh, people have been saying that kind of stuff for years. Uh, it's all based on a premise. And if the premise isn't true, it doesn't matter how many verses you have, the final conclusion's not true. Uh, he was, everything had to hinge on 1948, Israel went back to the land, 40 years is a generation, that's a guess. Uh, so it has to be 1988, that kind of thing. Uh, well, Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, your descendants will be in Egypt for four generations. That turned out to be 400 years. So it was 100 years. So somebody will say, ah, then it's got to be, let's see, 2048, that'd work. Uh, why would God not give us a date? because he knows human nature. Some people wouldn't get saved till New Year's Eve, uh, the day before. So he leaves you with the anticipation. Could happen at any time. Make sure you're ready to go. The reason why we brought Ed in, uh, we're in a very pivotal point in Revelation. Revelation 4, uh, we just read in chapter 3 of their seven churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. After that, we never see the word church in Revelation Chapter 4, verse 1 says, John was caught up. The Latin is rapturos. Ed's going to talk about the rapture. You ready to go? Ready to go. Okay, let's go. All right, let's do it. Thank you very much. It's always a joy for me to be uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, I went to seminary here back in the 1970s. Snowed every single day. Uh, and uh, it's really nice to be here on a beautiful fall day. Uh, and uh, to see what God is doing. Uh, back in the 70s, people in the seminaries here were saying, you know, you preach the Bible, hold on to the truth, but this is a tough area. The Northeast is hard. It's cold. You can't build a great church. And the Calvary Chapel guys came along, and uh, they just didn't know any better than to do it. Uh, believe that if you uh, uphold Jesus in the Bible, People will get saved. A church can be built. And what a thrill it is to see these great churches that have been established to the glory of God. You are blessed to be living in part of a miracle uh, with a pastor who loves God, loves the Lord, loves the Word, and loves you, and for 25 years has poured his heart and soul into this. It's an honor to be with you, Pastor Bob and to see what God is doing. Now, uh, I'm going to share a couple things with you uh, from Scripture. Also remind you in the lobby, I brought uh, two items with me that will help. 
uh, our brand new book that Mark Hitchcock and I co-wrote, Can We Still Believe in the Rapture? Some people say, well, why would you give it that title? Because there are people today saying, oh, I don't think the rapture is in the Bible. Uh, it's a new idea, whatever. Uh, justification by faith is a fairly new idea too, but uh, nevertheless, uh, let's just get rid of this. So we're looking at what does the Bible say? People will say, well, the word rapture is not in the English Bible. Well, neither is the word Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with co-equal attributes. The word Sunday is not in the Bible, but we're worshiping on a Sunday, Resurrection Day, because the early Christians met on the Lord's Day on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. So the concept of a doctrine can be taught in the Bible whether the English word is there or not. Now we'll see when we get to the Greek word for rapture, harpazo, it's literally zap, you're out of here, uh, to the glory of God. The real discussion is when. Going to put it before the tribulation, during the tribulation, after the tribulation. There is no tribulation. Everything is tribulation. Before the millennium, after the millennium, there is no millennium. We're already in the millennium. You got to put it at the end of time. You have to put it someplace. Now, uh, we'll deal with that in the book. Uh, I was uh, preaching in a church of a friend of mine uh, in a series of things, and he was doing his own sermon on Sunday morning. It was his church. And he preached all sermon against the rapture. And he got to the end of the sermon and said, And so you see, there never will be a rapture. All we have to look forward to is trouble, trouble, and more trouble. And his own congregation moaned out loud. Now, you've got to hit Presbyterians really hard to get them to moan. They moaned. I was tempted to stand up in the back and shout, wherefore, comfort one another with those words, but I didn't. After the service, I chatted with him. I said, Wilson, now look, you and I both believe there has to be a time the dead are raised and the living are caught up. We just put it at a different point in time, but I don't think you can really say there never will be a rapture. Uh, you got to put it someplace. So this book deals with that. Uh, and then a second book I brought along, our popular encyclopedia of apologetics, uh, deals with all the issues of defending the Christian faith. Why do we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, uh, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection, uh, etc.? And then how do we interact our faith with other religions and even with various cults of various kinds? So there are going to be articles in there alphabetically arranged on uh, what do Mormons believe, what do Muslims believe, Hinduism, uh, etc., Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, etc. And every one of those articles is written by somebody converted out of those movements uh, who really understands. The article on Jehovah's Witnesses is great because this guy was one. He said, these are the 10 things I'm going to talk to you about when they come to the door. Anything else, they don't know what to say. Uh, stay off of those 10, go to these 10 instead, etc. Very, very helpful material. Uh, it's $25. The Rapture book is $15. You can have them both for $30. Bucks. I don't care. Uh, if you want to photocopy something out of that or take a picture on your phone, send it to a friend, go ahead. Uh, it'll say in the front of the book, don't copy this stuff. It's my stuff. It's okay. I don't care. As old as I am, I'm glad if anybody uses it. Now, do me a favor. 
don't open an online store and fuck a book. Uh, nevertheless, go for it, okay? Those two things I think will help you uh, in your walk with the Lord. Now, I want to come to our topic this morning, can we still believe in the rapture? And uh, I'm reminded of a statement made by a famous liberal theologian, Emil Bruner, who said, the Christian faith without the second coming is like a ladder that leads nowhere. Technically, every Christian denomination believes in the second coming. This is not some rare thing that only a few people believe in. Baptists, Catholics, Presbyterians, Methodists, Pentecostal, Lutheran, what all, every denomination has somewhere in their doctrinal statement an affirmation of the return of Christ. Because Jesus clearly said, if I go back to heaven, I will do what? Come again, I will return. It's a promise as clear as anything in Scripture. The facts in the Bible are very, very clear. How we interpret the facts on the when and how issues uh, varies among genuine believers. Just because somebody doesn't view prophecy your way doesn't mean they're a horrible, terrible person. Uh, they view the timing based maybe on a different interpretive issue. And then you have, beyond that, just pure speculation. Educated, or in some cases uneducated, guesses uh, about the details. For several years, I traveled with Tim Lay, and we did lots of prophecy conferences all over America. And uh, Tim used to suggest that, he said, well, I think when the rapture occurs, all your clothes fall off when you go up. They're all left behind in a nice, neat pile uh, as a testimony of the fact you've been raptured away. I said, Tim, what about your glasses? What about false teeth, fillings, artificial parts? Some of us would have more left behind than God. You know, there's Grandma. Man, she left a pile. None of that was real. I don't know. There's some things you're not going to know until it happens. The facts are clear. The interpretations are valid but different. Beyond that, everything is a guess. And the problem is too many people preach their speculations as though they are the facts. And when it doesn't happen, then people overreact, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, uh, and uh, chuck the whole thing. So I want to remind us of the promise of the rapture itself in Scripture and how this fits with what Pastor Joe's doing uh, in his wonderful series. I love the title uh, that you are unlocking the blessings of the last book of the Bible uh, because Revelation promises to give us a blessing in our hearts and in our lives. So if you'll take your Bible this morning, we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is one of the major rapture passages in the Bible. And we'll see in a moment, there are several. But this one really locks it down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now let me remind us, in the book of Acts, Paul the apostle goes to Thessalonica, a real city in Greece. Still there today, I've been there. Uh, the stories in the Bible are not written in a mythology 
real people, real places, and real history. When Paul got to Thessalonica, there were no Christians in that city, none. He preaches the gospel, people get saved, and a church is planted. He only stayed there for three weeks. But he said, in those three weeks, they taught you everything you need to know about Jesus and the Bible, and Bible prophecy as well. That was part of it. Then he left. Several months go by, and apparently a couple of people in the church died. So the question came up, well, you taught us about the coming of Christ. Did they miss the return of Christ? And he writes this letter in part to answer that question and say, no, they didn't miss anything at all. Let me tell you why, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, New Testament scholars of all types claim 1 Thessalonians is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, of all the epistles in the New Testament. It's written in about 51 A.D., less than 20 years after the crucifixion. Don't fall for the idea uh, on TV somewhere, oh, the books of the Bible were written hundreds of years later. No, they weren't. Uh, this is written less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus already has brought Paul to a point of conversion, sent him to Thessalonica on the second missionary journey. Uh, and now he writes this back to them. Go to chapter 4, go to verse 13, the 13th verse. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant, uninformed about those that fall asleep or die, uh, that you do not grieve like others, the rest of men that have no hope. As a believer, sure, we grieve at the death of a loved one, but we don't grieve like an unbeliever. The unbeliever grieves with no hope at all. You'll never see him again. Because if we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, he came back to life, literally, bodily, physically, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those that have fallen asleep in him. Well, we know at death... The body goes to the grave, to the dust and ashes of time. But the Spirit goes to heaven for the believer to be with the Lord. So Paul will say elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. At death, the Spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. But at the rapture, the Spirit returns to pick up that body and resurrect it. God will bring with him those that have fallen asleep in Jesus, because according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we that are still alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those that have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll be resurrected. Then we that are still alive and remain will be what? Caught up. Now, if you like to mark things in your Bible, circle the words caught up. That's your rapture term. That's how it's translated in most English Bibles. In Latin, it was rapere or rapio, raptured away. And that's where the English word came from. In our translation, it's usually caught up. We'll see in a moment, it's that Greek word in the original, harpazo, snatched away, caught away, zap, you're gone. 
I'll come like a what? Thief in the night. Snatch you out of here. We will be caught up, notice, together with them, the dead, in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air, not on the earth. And so shall we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. The promise of the rapture was to give encouragement to the believers that if you die before Jesus comes, your body's still going to be resurrected one day, even from the dust or ashes of time. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole issue of how you ought to bury people, but let me remind you, early Christians were burned at the stake. They still can be resurrected. A Christian can die in a plane crash and get burned up, still be resurrected, etc. The early Christians, out of hope for the rapture and the resurrection, would bury the body uh, in the catacombs. But if you go to the catacombs in Rome today, there's nothing there. They've all disintegrated away to dust. God will regather those atoms and resurrect us. That's the promise of Scripture. If Jesus literally rose from the dead, didn't just ooze out of the grave spiritually, then we can have hope of a literal resurrection as well. Now, based on this passage, let me suggest to us seven assurances about the rapture from this passage. Number one, do not grieve like an unbeliever. Yes, at death, you grieve over the loss of a loved one, but you don't grieve like an unbeliever who feels like this is the end, there's no hope, there's no future, there's nothing to hope for. We know that when people fall asleep in Jesus, the body goes to the dust to sleep, so to speak. The spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. And this passage says that spirit has to return one day when Jesus returns. Number two, you have the reassurance the dead will return. Those that have gone to heaven, Jesus will bring with him from heaven when he returns. Your spirit's going to come back. People ask me all the time, well, what do I need my body for? I already died and went to heaven. Because you're not going to remain a disembodied spirit forever. That body is still going to be reclaimed by the Lord himself, and you're going to live in that body and serve the Lord when we return to reign and rule with Christ on earth. You say, man, we're coming back? Yeah, for a thousand years. Well, what are we going to do for a thousand years? You could start by straightening out the traffic in Philadelphia, especially around the airport. Uh, you could fix Highway 322. That really helped. Uh, there's all kinds of good stuff you could do uh, if you come back for a thousand years. But you're going to come back with a glorified body and serve the Lord forever. And in that glorified body, serve Him for all eternity in the vast universe that God has created. The assurance is he's going to lead uh, those departed spirits from heaven back to earth. Number three, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He will come back, notice in the text, in the clouds, in the air. At the return, he'll come back to the earth. In the rapture, we're caught up to meet him in the clouds. And there are three signals for that. Uh, that triumphal shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. Uh, when that happens, the believers hear the trumpet, hear the voice, 
and immediately are caught away. Now, some people sneer and they say, oh, you guys are teaching a secret rapture. Only the believers hear it. Yeah, I don't think it's a secret rapture if millions of people suddenly disappear. I don't think it's a secret. I think everybody's going to go, yike, what happened? Ah, uh, where'd they all go, etc. It's not a secret. But the precedent's clearly in the Bible. When Jesus spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, only Paul really heard what he said. Everybody else knew something was happening. He was saying, I'm calling you Saul by name. Uh, and when Daniel had the angel appear to him to speak to him in the vision. Only Daniel saw the vision and heard the voice. Uh, God calls us why? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice when I call them. They know me and I know them. When the shout goes forth and the archangel shouts and the trumpet sounds, then the promise of the resurrection, number four. The dead in Christ will rise first. That little designation in Christ is used in the New Testament letters about 50 times to refer to the church-age saints, the believers that are in Christ. They're the ones that are resurrected. Spirit went to heaven at death for 21 centuries now. People have lived with faith in Christ, anticipating His return, and died. Spirit went to heaven body went to the dust and the ashes of time. But at the rapture, the dead in Christ are going to be resurrected and brought their body, soul, and spirit back to life again. Spirit returns reignited with the body, and suddenly you're raised in a glorified body. Now, I don't know what all that means, I know after Jesus' resurrection, he still looked like Jesus. He could appear and disappear instantly, but then he could say to the disciples, touch me and see that I'm real. Thomas, put your finger in the nail print. Three times after the resurrection, he ate with the disciples. I like those verses. That implies we could eat in a glorified body and hopefully never gain weight, uh, etc. There are a lot of wonderful things we can anticipate with the rapture because the dead will be raised back to life. Number five, the living will be caught up. Rapture is simply the term by which we describe that. Caught away, snatched away. Latin, rapio, Greek word in the text in the original, harpazo. Uh, snatched away, caught away. Zap, you're out of here to the glory of God. Now, some people will say, well, you guys get that whole thing out of this one passage. No, there are raptures all through the Bible. In the book of Genesis, Enoch walked with God and whoosh, was not. God took him alive to heaven. Elijah was caught up alive in the chariot of fire and whisked away to heaven. So you have at least two raptures in the Old Testament, Enoch and Elijah. In the New Testament, Philip the evangelist witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch the eunuch is saved. Philip baptizes him in Acts 8, and immediately he is harpazo in the Greek, caught away and dropped down about 30 miles up the road, a temporary rapture, a harpazo. Paul said, I was caught up into the third heaven, uses that same word, harpazo. 
So you have a couple of temporary raptures. Uh, John in Revelation, come on up. I'm going to show you the future. I was in the Spirit, God, etc. Uh, all of those seem to be referring to rapture ideas. Even the ascension of Jesus in Revelation 12, and Pastor Bob will get there in the study. In Revelation 12, it refers to Christ as the male child who was destined to rule the world, but he was caught up, harpazo, under the Father's throne in heaven, raptured up in the ascension. And then you have the resurrection and rapture of those two witnesses in that strange passage in Revelation 11. These two guys are raised up by God from among the Jewish community. They're preaching that Jesus is the Messiah during the time of tribulation, and the Antichrist finally has them executed. Leaves their bodies lying dead in the street in Jerusalem for three and a half days while all the world watches and rejoices, uh, etc. I remember hearing somebody talk about this back in the 1950s and said, I don't know how the whole world could see these guys all at one time in only three and a half days, but my guess is it probably has something to do with television. Uh, yeah, satellite transmissions, etc. But then what happens in that passage? After three and a half days, Revelation 11 says the Spirit of God came into them and they stood on their feet, resurrected and raptured up to heaven. Harpazo away. I'd love to be watching CNN on that day. Here we are in Jerusalem. The two guys are still dead in the street. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They're moving around. They're moving around. They're going up. Yeah. Now, why would God do a mini rapture of those two guys? I think to convince the world the greater rapture had already occurred when we're all, as believers, caught away to meet the Lord in the air, etc. So rapture is not an unusual idea in the Bible. The whole thing about flying away, etc. Even Jonathan Edwards, who was technically post-millennial, has a very strong statement about when we're all caught away uh, and those that are left behind are under the judgment of God. Put the timing in a different place, but he still believes strongly there has to be a rapture. Come back on. Uh, some people try to say, it's this tall pulpit. Uh, that's what does it. When you have a tall pastor, you have a tall pulpit. If you get a five foot six preacher in here, get rid of this thing. Uh, you'll never see the guy. Uh, but uh, it's cool having a tall pastor. I'm six one, and it's tall for me. Uh, now, some people say, well, you guys are teaching two, two second comings. No, we're not. It's two aspects of the second coming, just like there are multiple aspects of the first coming. The first coming, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, his death on the cross, he leaves, and his resurrection and his ascension, that's all part of the first coming. In the second coming, there is the rapture of the believers to the clouds, and then our return with Christ to the earth. The rapture is in the air. The return is to the earth. The differences between the two, there's at least 15 or 20 different things that occur. At the rapture, you're going up to the Father's house to the marriage of the Lamb. In the return, you're coming back with the Lamb who's going to win the battle of Armageddon and reign and rule on earth. There are so many differences between the rapture and the return, they can't really occur, in my opinion, simultaneously. Uh, they're separate aspects of the return. 
Then number six, the rapture involves a reunion. We're reunited with the entire family of God from all those 21 centuries of church history. That means every lost, departed, loved one of yours that didn't know the Lord is not going to be there. Every saved, departed, loved one will be. Every mom, every dad, every son, daughter, sister, brother that knew the Lord who's already stepped to the other side, they will be there when the dead are raised and the living are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the great reunion that takes place in the clouds with the Lord forever. Therefore, number seven, the resolution in the passage is be resolved to comfort one another with these words. And, and the Greek text word for comfort, parakaleo, from paraclete. Well, that's the term used of the Holy Spirit. He'll send the comforter. Part of that spiritual comfort is the anticipation that Jesus is coming again to take us home to heaven. Now, again, I realize the older you are, the sooner you want him to come because you're running out of time. The younger you are, you're in no hurry. You're thinking, I got a whole life to live here. Well, you can trust God for the timing. He knows when the timing is right to come and call us home. Now, when he calls us home, then it raises the question, what is the purpose of this rapture then? Why do we go up? Let me suggest four things. First, to take the bride to the Father's house. John 14, the last night before the crucifixion. They've already had the Last Supper in John 14. Judas has already left the room on his way to betray him. Only the 11 believing disciples are still there. To those believers, Jesus said, I'm going back to the Father's house. And if I go to the Father's house, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. At some point, that promise, as it applies to believers generation after generation, he has to come to take all of the bride home to the Father's house. Secondly, we're going to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat judgment, Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5, that all the believers will stand before the Bema seat judgment to receive our rewards for serving the Lord. Everything that you're doing as a believer, to share your faith with others, to serve the Lord in some capacity, whether you're working on the parking lot or in the lobby or you're teaching children, you're working in the nursery, you're working with teenagers, uh, you're teaching in the Christian school, you're serving the Lord in some capacity uh, here at Calvary Chapel, God keeps the record book. He knows what you're doing. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in Detroit in a non-believing home. My parents were not atheists. They were what we would call today none, N-O-N-E. None, nothing. Uh, they didn't, we didn't have a Bible. We didn't go to church. Nobody talked about Jesus. Nothing. I got saved in vacation Bible school because a church like this that believed the gospel, taught it in vacation Bible school, and I went there and heard that Jesus loved me, that he died for my sins, that he rose from the dead, that he would give me a home in heaven forever, and it was free. I raised my hand. I'm like, yeah, I'll believe that. I'm in. 
And the lady that dealt with me, Mrs. Johnson, was very thorough, very clear. Kid, we don't believe in Jesus like Santa Claus. This is the real deal forever here. You better lock in. You enter, you're out. I'm in. And she had no clue that that kid one day would teach in the largest theological seminary in the world at Liberty. We have over 20,000 students studying with us, 15,000 on campus, 85,000 online. You can go to Liberty and do a degree in medicine or nursing or engineering or law or anything you want, or ministry. We've got about 1,500 ministry students on campus, but we've got 20,000 of them online all over the world uh, that are studying to serve the Lord. She had no idea that kid would travel and preach on every continent, except Antarctica, uh, and uh, she would share in that ministry and share in that blessing and in that reward. Everything you've ever done for the Lord, you have no idea what those kids or young people ultimately will do with their lives in serving God. God keeps the record book at the judgment seat of Christ. Third, we've got to go up to go to the marriage of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb, Christ, is described as taking place in heaven. You've got to go up to get to the marriage where you receive the white robe of righteousness because the people with the white robe of righteousness then in the same chapter return with Him at the triumphal return. The bride of Christ marches out of heaven at the return with her warrior husband. No longer the church rejected, persecuted, uh, made fun of on Saturday Night Live and everything else. All of a sudden, we're the church triumphant. Had to go up to go to the marriage to get ready to come back in the return. You say, are we coming back to help Jesus fight at the Battle of Armageddon? No, He doesn't need our help. We're back to cheer Him on. He comes back and speaks the word and it's over. Slays the army of the Antichrist throws the beast and the false prophet uh, into the bottomless, or excuse me, into the lake of fire. Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years, and we reign and rule with him on planet Earth in that raptured, glorified body. You have to have a rapture to be ready for all of those things to transpire. Now, let me suggest to you very simply, there has to be a rapture. Is it before the tribulation which the Bible describes as the wrath of God and the wrath of Christ? Is it after that? Is it, where do you put it? Let me give you 10 suggestions why I think it needs to be before the time of tribulation. That doesn't mean Christians are not going to suffer troubles and problems here on planet Earth. Of course we are. But we're not going to suffer the wrath of God. Uh, number one, Jesus promised to take us home to the Father's house. Body, soul, and spirit has to be a rapture to do that. Number two, Jesus' basic instructions. Matthew 24, keep watching for me to come. He didn't say be watching for the Antichrist to come. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm not even looking for the undertaker. I dodged him. Uh, I'm looking for the upper taker. Be ready for me to come. Why would he say that unless it were possible that he could come at any time? Uh, he also said in Luke 21, pray that you escape the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Why would you pray that you escape if you can't escape? In Revelation 3.10, one of the letters to the churches, uh, again he says, you'll be kept from, ek in Greek, exit, out from, 
the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Thirdly, the persecuted woman uh, in Revelation 12, Pastor Bob will get to that section, uh, represents the nation of Israel. She's the mother of Christ in that passage. This is not the church that's going through the time of trouble. The church is not the mother of Christ. The church is what? The bride of Christ. Your bride is not your mother. Your mother is not your bride, I hope. Uh, they're two totally different people with different responsibilities. And then the church is not the object of divine wrath. The church may be the object of human wrath, and often has been. Persecution, even martyrdom. The object of Satan's wrath, yes. But not the object of the wrath of God. Jesus took that for us on the cross. When he stands up on the nails on the cross, pulls himself up on the spikes, when he shouts to the Father, the wrath of God falls on him on the cross. Jesus takes the wrath for us. We deserve it, but he took it. So we sing that old hymn, Jesus paid it what? All. All to him I am. He's the one that washes us clean. He's the one that saves your soul. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I think 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it's the very next chapter in 1 Thessalonians. Paul just goes right on to say what? In an eschatological context, we will not receive the wrath of God. That we're not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation. Number five, the rapture is always pictured as an imminent possibility. It could happen potentially at any moment, at any time. That's why it's called the blessed hope of the believer. It's something to look forward to, not to fear. It's pictured as instantaneous. 1 Corinthians 15, in a flash, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, zap, we're gone. The rapture is uniquely for those in Christ, for the church-age believers. Number eight, it has to precede the Bema Seat judgment there has to be time to go up to meet him at the Bema Seat. It has to precede the marriage, and it has to precede the Battle of Armageddon, which takes place at the return. In other words, you've got to go up at some point, resurrected, raptured up, meet the Lord in the air, go to the Father's house, go to the judgment seat, go to the marriage, and come back with him to reign and rule with him on planet Earth. So people who believe in the rapture are not escapists. They're just abandoning the planet. No, we actually think we're coming back uh, and that we have a responsibility here for a thousand years, that God still has a plan and a purpose for the planet, uh, etc. in the future. We also understand uh, our relationship to God and the world in which we live. You and I are living in a time of an angry atheism. Uh, when I was growing up, there were some people that would say, no, I don't believe in God, but they weren't angry about it. They were like, oh, you poor thing. You want to believe in God? Fine, go ahead. I don't care. Not me. Pfft, I'm at the party. I'm out of here. Now it's an angry atheism. Oh, you believe in God? Oh, I hate that. Uh, I'm mad at you. And, I was, and then when something goes wrong, they're always mad at the God they don't believe in. Uh, everything goes wrong in life, and they're like, oh, God, they're cursing God. I thought you didn't believe in him. You must be insane. You're yelling at a prison who doesn't exist. Uh, what do you, why don't you blame the planet? Oh, evolution, darn you, you're killing me. Oh, natural selection, darn you, you're eliminating me. 
No, they're mad at God. Why? Because intuitively, down deep, they know there is a God. They're created in the image and likeness of God. They just don't want to accept His authority and that He's God and you're not. And they wrestle with that. And so God's promise is you and I are living in a fallen world with a heavenly hope because a Savior that loves you went to the cross and died for your sins, rose from the dead, and is promising to give you eternal life by simply trusting what he did on the cross, that his death was sufficient, his blood was enough, so that I don't have to, if somebody says, are you on your way to heaven? The answer is not, well, I hope so. No, you need to know so with confidence. Well, I'm doing the best I can. The best you can. God did the best he could. He sent the sinless Savior to die for our sins. Nothing gets better than that. But I think the thing that really grips me the most in all of this is, and I have good friends and good people who differ on the timing issues, is this. I don't believe for one moment the church is the object of divine wrath. You say, why is that so important? Because in the book of Revelation, and you'll see this in your study, the seal judgments are the wrath of the Lamb. The trumpet judgments come out of that. The bowl judgments are called the wrath of God. It's divine wrath poured out on an unbelieving world shaking its fist at God. I don't believe the church is the object of the Savior's wrath. Now, I've heard a few people say, well, I think he's going to send the church through the tribulation to purify the bride. That sounds like Protestant purgatory to me. Um, I'm going to show you a picture, not to offend anybody, but to make a point. Technically, it's an actress, but you'll get the idea. Ask yourself, is this picture the image of Jesus' bride and his plan for the bride? Beat her up, beat her up, beat her up. Judgment, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. Now come on to the wedding. I don't think so. I don't think that imagery works at all. I look at that and say to myself, no, a thousand times no. He loves the bride. He died for the bride. He's coming again for the bride. And you and I can have confidence, whether it's absent from the body, resurrected at the rapture, or we that are alive and remain are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. The bride of Christ is on her way to heaven to meet the Savior who loves you like nobody loves you, who will care for you like nobody will ever care for you. The only real question is, is he coming for you? That's the question. And only you can answer that question. That's why the claim of the gospel is so powerful and so essential. Do I really know him as my Savior? Have I given my heart and life to him? Have I put my faith and trust in him? Have I said yes to him and his authority in my life? Or am I still trying to make it on my own? That's really the bottom line. The invitation of Scripture is pretty simple. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But you have to call. You have to ask. You have to believe. Preachers can't pray into heaven. You have to pray. You have to ask. You have to call. But the wonderful good news of the gospel is when you do, the Savior will say, yes, come. That's his invitation. Come.
to me and let me bless your life. Let's pray together.